Luciana Garota, the science reporter for Currently Concordia. While some are trying to make the world a better place, researchers say there's one way you can make your world a better place. Get a best friend. I'm here with Professor Ryan E. Adams from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Professor William M. Bukowski from the psychology department here at Concordia. Hi, and welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Yep. Thanks for having us. Dr. Adams and Dr. Bukowski collaborated and published a paper this month that shows how having a best friend can offset the stress and feeling of low self-esteem that can come after having a negative experience. For the study, grade 5 and 6 kids kept journals and recorded their experiences five times a day. They had to write down who they were with and recorded any experiences they had just had and how they felt about themselves. They also had to spit into a vial five times a day to provide the researchers with samples of a hormone that is, that is associated with stress, cortisol. Their self-esteem, so how they felt about themselves, was based on how strongly they agreed with a statement such as, I like myself, or I am happy with the way I am. Dr. Adams and Dr. Bukowski found that when kids had positive experiences, their self-esteem and stress levels weren't all that different, whether they were alone or with a friend. But best friends made a difference when kids had a very negative experience. In this case, kids who were alone showed higher stress and lower self-esteem than kids who had had the negative experience but were in the company of a best friend. Dr. Adams and Dr. Bukowski, what negative experiences are we talking about here? Can you give us some examples of what the kids wrote about in this study? Well, we don't know exactly um, <clears throat> what kind of experiences they were having, but they were experiences, typical experiences at school. So it, uh, just because we asked them how negative was the experience, not exactly what they were doing. So it could be things like maybe they got a bad grade on a test, um, maybe somebody called them a name. Uh, maybe they lost a kickball, something like that. And so um, while we don't know exactly what the negative experience was, that's sort of for further study, uh, we know in general how they felt about the experience. So they themselves rated how badly they felt after having these experiences. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, one of the interesting parts about the study is that it was not a laboratory study. We were trying to uh, understand children's experiences in their typical environment, which for children of this age are, is the school, uh, the hallways, the lunchroom, playground, and so on. And so we were able to capture for each child whether they found their experience to be either positive or negative. When people do laboratory experiences, they often subject people to different uh, moments which they assume are going to be negative or positive for people. Here we actually knew whether someone's experience had been experienced either negative or positive. Right. So out in the field, that's great. Um, your, your study also showed that, um, that it wasn't actually enough for kids, to have, to, for kids to have a friend during these experiences. It really had to be a best friend. Can you tell us a bit more about why that could be? Well, in general, when we think about it, you can sort of distinguish a uh, best friend from just a sort of a typical friend or an acquaintance. Uh, in psychology, we call that uh, close relationships. So in close relationships, we know there's different processes that happen than just um, an acquaintance or you know a, a regular friend. So things like uh, intimacy. You tell your best friend sort of uh, the worst things that happen. Uh, you might also feel more secure around them. Your friend might, uh, close friends might also be more likely to step in and help. 
So there's lots of different processes that would happen only with a best friend that wouldn't happen with a typical friend. And you said in the paper that future studies should look at exactly what it is that best friends are providing during these crucial moments. Um, so you mentioned some things like maybe that they're stepping in, but maybe can you elaborate, elaborate a bit further as into what you think it would be if future studies were conducted on that? Well, I'll, I can put a little plug in for some research that I'm doing right now with obese kids, and uh, I, I'm looking at intimacy issues. So mainly uh, the relationship between intimacy and self-disclosure. So uh, the fact that you're, um, you're more likely to tell your best friend about something that negative happens, or you're more, more likely to share, feel comfortable sharing these negative things with them. But it's also about how your friend responds to that. And so best friends typically respond in a more positive manner. So if somebody calls you a name, hey, you know, you're an idiot, your friend would say things like, oh, well, your best friend more likely to say, oh, that's the per that person has the problem, not you, you're great, you're smart. Whereas maybe somebody who's not so close might th say things like, oh, it seems like people call you an idiot a lot, or you're always getting in these situations. So um, that's sort of, that might be one way, one process, one way. Now, Dr. Bukowski, you mentioned that uh, this was done out in the field, right? So how hard was it to get kids to follow through on giving spit samples five times a day and writing in journals five times a day? It was a challenge for the children to produce saliva. We needed each of them to produce about a, t a tablespoon of saliva each time. So five times a day for four consecutive days. The first time that they had to produce a tablespoon of saliva, they found this to be a, a remarkably difficult experience. Uh, that was at, the, at home in the morning before they came to school. The next time was just after they had come into the school classroom uh, at the beginning of the day. And again, a lot of children had a lot of trouble. Um, we often think of saliva as something that just flows, but in fact it doesn't. So the, uh, as you might imagine, that during a project of this sort, the research team told a lot of jokes about Pavlov uh, and his, uh, his experiments. But eventually, the children found it a lot easier to produce saliva. They didn't feel quite so self-conscious about it, of providing saliva in front of their, uh, of their classmates. The name of the procedure has, is, we used what's known as a passive drool procedure, which is, I guess, a fancy way of just saying producing saliva and spitting it into the vial. We eventually went, uh, went past a supermarket that was in the neighborhood of the school and bought some lemons. We told the students... Uh, uh, we'd hold up the lemon in front of the classroom and say, close your eyes and imagine you've just bitten into the lemon. And that produces saliva pretty quickly. Oh. So the first few times were a bit rough. Uh, children felt self-conscious about producing saliva in front of uh, their classmates, but eventually it became uh, pretty routine and uh, the saliva flowed. In terms of filling out the booklets, uh, that wasn't too much of a problem. Children are happy to talk about themselves. And uh, once we got things going, we became a pretty routine uh, set of people in the classrooms. Great. So they've become saliva experts. Right. <laughs> um, so also, you mentioned in the paper that uh, it's possible that kids who naturally have a reactive stress system may not have best friends. So does this mean that it's not that best friends are actually helping in negative situations, but rather that kids who often get stressed or have low esteem just don't have best friends with them often in school? That's yeah, probably the case that the relationship between stress, stress responsivity and friendship is rather complicated. And it's important for us to distinguish between analyses that look at friended and unfriended children and look at differences within children according to whether they're with a friend or not with a friend. 
Certainly children who have trouble managing their stress, those who become nervous, uh, those who are especially sensitive to the influences of others, it might be more difficult for them to maintain harmonious relationships and to attract children to them than for other children who are common, who have a calmer disposition and who are maintain a more positive outlook on things. So it may be that the children who are more stress responsive and whose stress responsivity systems don't function as well may have fewer opportunities to establish good friends relative to other children. But now, you were both telling me that, um, that the way the study was analyzed was that it was actually within the same child, that you, know, you looked at them when they had a very positive experience and when they had a very negative experience, and this is what you saw, so that uh, it was more, really this effect was within the children you were looking at rather than you were looking at two different sets of children, one that didn't have a lot of friends and one that had a lot of friends. So. Um, yeah, in this particular analysis, we didn't really compare children with a lot of friends to children without friends. What we did was we looked at whether or not within each particular person, whether their stress response system functioned differently according to whether they're with a friend or without a friend. I think that the, one of the interesting things about the study was that we were able to take advantage of newly developed statistical techniques that allow us to look at differences within people instead of using traditional techniques, which often looked at differences between people. And so... Uh, I think that what the, what the study tells us is that there is sort of an interpersonal regulation of one of the most body's fundamental stress response systems. And it really suggests that the, uh, the, the power of context to help people or, or to affect how people respond to stress. And now, uh, Dr. Adams, you were telling me that, um, that one thing about the study is that Sorry, I'm going to move on to the next question because I just blanked out. Um, so my next question was actually, what about the effect that parents can have on these negative experiences? I, uh, I read a paper that showed that adolescents with good relationships with their parents had actually better psychological well-being than those who didn't have good relationships with their parents. Um, these well-being measures included anxiety and depression. And the study also showed that if these adolescents had good relationships with their peers, um, it didn't help with psychological being um, as long as their relationship with their parents was not good. So it seems here that uh, their, their peers are not helping if they're not having a good relationship with their parents. How do you think that these results relate to your study? Or do they? Um, I'll try to answer the question by not answering the question. <laughs> uh, so one way that might, might to think about this is to come back to that issue of close relationships. And um, parents are, are a close relationship also. And so at, especially at this period of time, what you see is sort of a transitioning from parents to, to friends for a lot of things. And we know that um, these two things don't happen in a vacuum that typically if you have a high quality relationship with your parents, these translates in, this translates into uh, similar relationships with friends. So sort of maybe learning is going on there, whatever it is. So um, these aren't totally separate things. And a lot of the things that are happening in these close relationships with parents, like intimacy issues, disclosure, security, these are the same things that friends start doing for you as you uh, develop into adolescence and on into adulthood. 
So you're saying that if you haven't learned how to establish intimacy with your parents, you're going to have trouble translating that to your your relationships with friends. It, it might be more difficult, but the nice thing is is that it's not a one-to-one thing. We know sometimes people have difficulty with their parents. Sometimes they transition and have great relationship with their friends, and the friends can sometimes serve as protection against maybe some negative parenting also. So it's not quite one-to-one. In some ways, that's good. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Mikowski, you were telling me that this is one of the first studies that's really showing the immediacy, uh, having some immediate measures of uh, these negative experiences. Can you tell me more about that? I think I alluded to this a bit earlier. Typically, these uh, stress responsivity has been studied in laboratory contexts, and we were uh, grateful to have the opportunity to sort of study it in vivo, right within the typical context in which the children function on a daily basis. And so this is, we were able to do this because of recent developments in not only measurement of, uh, of stress hormones, but also because of recent advances in statistical techniques that would allow us to study things as they're happening. Great. So Dr. Adams and Dr. Bukowski, thank you so much for joining us. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks.